Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, we prayed a great prayer before uh, that we would set our minds on things above. And I, I want us to turn to the scriptures to help us to do that. But before you pick up the Bible, uh, I just want you to hold fire. I was always taught I was, I was growing up that uh, if someone came into the room to speak to you, you should take your nose out of a good book. And uh, the thing about the Bible is that when you hear the Bible read, it's the king of the universe who comes to speak. So listen. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth on wild living. After he had spent all he had, there was a severe famine in that country and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food enough to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So, He got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to him and threw his arms around him and kissed him. He said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father replied, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Meanwhile, the elder son was out in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother has returned, he said. 
And your father has killed the fattened calf because he had him back safe and sound. But the elder brother was angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he said, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even give me a young goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. Yet this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fattened calf? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead but he is alive again. He was lost and is found. In monetary terms, Jordan Belfort was a remarkably successful stockbroker. With his first bonus back in the 1980s, he bought a white Ferrari. On another occasion, he, he managed to run, run up a single hotel bill of $700,000. And yet on another occasion, he fell asleep in a pile of cocaine that was big enough to act as a pillow. In the end, he, he managed to swindle ordinary working Americans out of $200 million. And his infamy was recently resurrected in Martin Scorsese's most recent film, The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, Belfort was apparently thrilled to be played by somebody as glamorous as Leonardo DiCaprio. But it's a film that was as controversial as Belfort himself. I haven't seen the film, but some critics condemned it for reveling in rather than explicitly judging the obscene lifestyle that it depicts. Though in real life, if not in celluloid, there was a kind of comeuppance of sorts for Belfort. In a plea bargain, he shopped his friends, was imprisoned for two years, and agreed to pay back half of all the money he swindled. He is now working, as I think is only possible in a North American context, he is now working as a motivational speaker. And in the words of his website, the world's greatest sales trainer. Now, of course, if you watch the film or watch any film, listen to any story, and you enter the world through someone else, you see life through someone else's eyes. You understand truth, even uncomfortable truth, about the world, about yourself, in a way that facts and figures don't really do. It's one of the reasons that Scorsese's film has been so controversial. It's the imaginative power of film, of, of story, that depending on which critic you read, either endorses or subverses the immoral excesses of Wall Street. 
As Jan Martel puts it in his book, Life of Pi, there is a, a dry, yeastless factuality. There's a kind of facts and figures of life that don't really set your blood racing. Against that, there's the often surprising and uncomfortable truths about life that come through story. Now, of course, factuality matters, but it is interesting to see how much story shapes our lives. From cradle to grave, from childhood picture books to Hollywood blockbusters, a story begins and you are drawn in. Important questions are are temporarily suspended and, and you suddenly find yourselves engaging with even more profound questions. Uh, Luke's Gospel, and if you've not turned it up already, then you might want to. Luke's Gospel, page 1049, is a a first century account of Jesus' life. It is in what many ways Jan Martel's protagonist would deride as dry, yeastless factuality. For Luke, as he opens the book, says that it's a careful investigation of eyewitness testimony. Certainly by comparison with any document of ancient antiquity, Luke's account is a remarkably reliable piece of history. And yet as you read Luke's account, as we will over the next three Sunday evenings, you you find yourself drawn into the teaching and the stories of Jesus. Stories that, that force you to temporarily suspend some of your questions, even as they force you to ask deeper ones. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. It's the story of any family. It's the story of every family, Wall Street or Palestine, daughters or son. The details may be different, but the themes are the same. Now, the two sons are still living at home, which in a first century setting meant that they were almost certainly teenagers and single. And then comes a bid for freedom from the younger son and a body blow for his aging father. Verse 12. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Hard to imagine the bluntness of such a request in any culture, still less in a culture where filial respect was so important. The assumption of rights, the abandonment of responsibilities, the breakdown of family relationships, so great he as good as wishes his father dead. It's funny in Jesus' story, there's a kind of poignant economy of detail. There's no recorded remonstration of a wounded father. There's no self-justifying excuses of a wayward son. Simply a statement of fact. So, he divided the property between them. Again, I I think it's hard to imagine what was going through the mind of this father as he handed his lifetime's wealth into the hands of his younger son. Though as you read on, it becomes clear that he was more grieved at the loss of a relationship than he was at the loss of any real estate. I, I suppose it is a bit of an understatement to say that since the conversation to end all conversations, things had been a little bit awkward at home. Goodness, whether we are parents or children or both, most of us have had difficult family situations that mean you don't really want to be around the family home. No surprise then, verse 13, that not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. He, He wanted to be away from his father. 
away from his values, his outlook, his taste. He wanted to be away from his direction, his scrutiny, and, and away from his home. And so he sets off and travels as far as he can to a distant country. And in this distant country, he does what? He squanders his wealth in wild living. Interesting, Jesus leaves much more to the imagination than Scorsese, but it doesn't take much effort to fill in the blanks, does it? You just have to live in the real world. Now, if you're a sixth former, you probably know more than a few mates hiding their party antics from their parents. And if you're in the workplace, you're probably aware of more than one colleague who's got problems with what? Alcohol and money and relationships. And if you're a student, maybe your flat is a model of abstinence and restraint. But you don't have to look very far to find people whose lives seem completely out of control. By the middle of his first semester at university, one of my son's course mates had already spent almost his entire student loan and overdraft on alcohol, cannabis, and partying. And why worry about a world of consequences when you can hide everything from your parents and even yourself because of this magical money tree called student debt. And anyway, what your parents would censure as wild living is only what your average student would call a great party. And after all, aren't student days the best days of your life? But then verse 14, there is a turning point in this young man's life. A turning point that is in part due to his decisions and in part born of his circumstance. He had spent everything and there was a severe famine. His, his inheritance was used up and there was a serious downturn in the economy. Choice and circumstance faced him at last with reality. Sometimes that can be true for us too, can't it? Faced with choices that we regret, circumstances that we cannot change, a reality that we cannot avoid. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Of course, as the story progresses, as Luke's account progresses, you realize that he had always been in need profound need it's just that up to this point he couldn't see it and of course because all good stories make you see your own life through the lives of others questions about need and denial and reality haunt not just this young man but you and me as the reader You see, by the time you get to verse 14, there are fractures in the, the unreality of his own making, things that he had ignored, either through denial or diversion, things that are about to press upon him in a way that was simply impossible for him to ignore. Now, from the outside, familiar as we are with this story, there seems to be an almost inevitable, inexorable spiral downward to disaster. 
But viewed from the inside, looking at the world through the eyes of the younger son, I suspect he was still in denial even when things were as bad as they were in verse 14. Now, sure, he had begun to be in need. But this wasn't a disaster to be faced. This was a difficulty to be managed. It is true, isn't it? Diversion and denial of a spiritual salve of every generation. Keep busy with work, with revision, with career, with family. The truth is, sometimes it's just the stuff of life that stops us seriously thinking about the meaning of life. As T.S. Eliot put it, humankind can only bear so much reality. So, verse 25. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. He, a Jew, went to get employment from a man who was a Gentile. And feeding pigs for any self-respecting Jew was about as low as it could get. And if that wasn't bad enough, it seems likely that his income was either below a living wage or insufficient to pay off his debts and fill his stomach. For verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Some needs you can't ignore, either through denial or or through diversion. And this man had tried both. Now, petulance and partying had been good whilst it lasted, but choice and circumstance left him with a deep need that nothing could deal with. funny eventually you you have to stop pretending don't you eventually you have to face reality eventually you have to see how badly you got it wrong and to hope that there might actually be a way out of the mess of your own making and so finally verse 17 a loved and materially blessed son stands hungry in a pigsty and comes to his senses what he faces is death what he hopes for is life verse 17 how many of my father's hired servants have food enough to spare and here i am starving to death i will set out and go to my father and say father I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Of course, the question that is hanging in verse 20 is how will the father respond? Now, I know that we we know the story, so we we don't feel the shock that is coming, but see the world through the eyes of the Father, and there can only be one response, can't there? This son took everything and ended up with nothing. He abandoned his father's home and squandered his father's wealth. Everything within you, the reader, feels that justice needs to be done. It's actually one of the reasons why Wolf of Wall Street has been such a controversial film because to some, in the film, as in life, Jordan Belfort got away with it. 
everything within you feels that the Father owes the Son nothing but justice. But through the eyes of the Son, you know that his only hope, your only hope and mine, is not the justice you deserve, but the mercy you don't. You know, at one level, there's nothing particularly complex about Jesus' story here, certainly not in terms of meaning. Jesus had the habit of hanging out with disreputable people, and it was scandalizing the religious. The parties that Jesus went to had a guest list to raise the eyebrows of the censorious. Drinkers, money launderers, prostitutes. And so the religious were worried, worried that the company that this unorthodox preacher was keeping was giving people a totally wrong picture of God. And so Jesus actually tells this story to help people to know what God is really like. See, what of the person who has taken everything from God? Life and breath and and family and food and friends and ability. What of the person who has taken everything from God and given him nothing? Not recognition? Not acknowledgement? Not thanks? Could God possibly be interested in someone like that? God loves the religious, doesn't he? Not the party animal. He's recruiting amongst the respectable, isn't he? Not amongst the rebellious. See, the younger son sees that he finally sees that he has nothing. He has no money, no food, no home. If he could once, if he could once request the inheritance of a son, now the best he can hope for are the duties of a slave. I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired servants so he got up and went to his father and his father did what rebuked him and railed against him and threatened him you squander my hard earned wealth in wild living and seriously expect to come home But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to him and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father replied, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead but is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, I suspect one of the dangers with any depiction of an extreme lifestyle the wolf of Wall Street, whether he's wearing his first or 21st century clothing, the danger with any depiction of an extreme lifestyle is that it brings out the moralist in most of us. 
Uh, Look at the life of a Jordan Belfort or or the younger son squandering his father's wealth on wild living. Look at anyone like that and we can easily feel a kind of moral superiority. I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but at least I'm not like a, well, I don't know, it used to be thief, murderer and adulterer. Now it's probably at least I'm not an MP, banker and some sort of TV presenter from the 1980s. Compared to everyone else, it's easy to include that, conclude that most of us have lived a pretty good life. I was discussing it with a lecturer friend of mine recently, and he followed the conversation up in an email and said to me, if there is a God, I can't believe that he wouldn't welcome me into his heaven. As I feel I live a good and honest life and I treat people with dignity and respect. And in many ways, you know, he's right. Compared to many people, he does live a good, honest life, and he does treat people with dignity and respect, which is why it's so interesting to read the reaction of the older son to the return of his prodigal brother. Verse 25, meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants over to ask what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. And you can understand his reaction, can't you? I certainly can. It seems that he had heard the rumors, verse 30, that this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. So how is it justice to blow an inheritance, shame a father, and return to an extravagant family party? Can you really blow the inheritance, reject your father, and shame your family and get a party, not punishment? Doesn't any of this stuff matter? And yet, you know, for all the older brother demands justice, he doesn't seem to realize that his need for mercy is as great as his brother's. All my life I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. There is nothing like moral outrage to blind us to our own moral failures. Nothing. You see, sometimes our rebellion can be flagrant, sometimes it can be insidious, and the truth is that in a patriarchal society, the elder son's behavior would have brought very public shame on his father. He refused to attend a great party his father had arranged, and as a host, his father is compelled to leave the party and his guest and to go outside and plead, plead to his older son to come in. You know, the truth is that you can leave home and travel to a distant country. And you can leave home and be working in your own backyard. You can reject God and be incredibly rebellious. You can reject God and be extremely religious. I know one of the difficulties with this passage is that the story is so familiar, it's almost impossible to recover any of the surprises. 
But then as C.S. Lewis once put it, we do not enjoy a story fully at the first reading. Not till the curiosity, the sheer narrative lust has been given its sop and laid asleep, are we at leisure to savour the real beauty. And there is something truly beautiful about this story. A homecoming story for the rebellious and the religious. A reminder of a truth that we forget, a truth we reject, a truth that we grow hard to, and yet a truth that can break hard hearts even as it can mend broken hearts. You know, I think communion is a really wonderful way to finish this evening. For this is the place where we are reminded where lost sons and daughters can come home. For God still sees us when we are a long way off. And he is still filled with compassion. He still runs to greet and restore and forgive those who have wished him as good as dead. And yet this meal speaks not of the sacrifice of a fattened calf, but of a precious son. A celebration meal for all those who are dead and are alive again. For all those who know they were lost and know that Jesus has found them. Well, let's just take a moment just to bow our heads. Just a moment of quiet as we can pray. And then we'll sing.